1: Delighted to welcome Sam Levy today to the Stone Goodbyes podcast. Welcome, Sam. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. Been a, a long time in the organising, but delighted that that we finally connected. You want to speak today about your wonderful husband Pete. You said you want to speak with love and passion about him, and I don't doubt that you'll be able to do that. You have generously shared a recording of Pete's best man speech at your wedding. We're going to play an excerpt from that. I am reminded of a story, (laughs) which my wife has told me not to say. I was going to read it out a bit later. But basically, the raw ingredients are mass brawl at a traditional Scottish wedding between the two families. Basically, uh, everything is going well until they pose for the photographs. The husband sat on the wife's knee, um, he hadn't wiped properly, and he left the mark. (laughs) (laughs) how does it feel i mean you've listened to that many times since he passed what does it mean to you to to have his voice on a recording, to be able to, you know, to listen to him again.
0: It's amazing. I love it. And there's only so much your brain can can hold of, of that person. And sadly, things do get lost over time. And it's just how we are. It's not because you miss them less, but having something I can watch and hear his tone and his cheeky way of delivering. It's just... It means everything that I can see him be a bit cheeky and yeah, it's lovely.
1: It's almost like having him back in a way. Yeah. A comfort.
0: Yeah. I do have one other very small clip of us playing pool because he bought a pool table and he wanted me to record him for all his workmates so he could show them. So it wasn't a lined up shot, but he said, Are you filming? I said, Yes. And he shot and he said, Oh, piss. (laughs) And And I just laughed at him. Because he was laughing because he missed it completely. Just the capturing the essence of who he was. That's what these videos do. And it reminds me and keeps him very much alive in my mind. Can you sum up his essence? Funny, grumpy. (laughs) And everyone who knows him will attest to that. He was a grumpy so-and-so. He really loved me and I really loved him. And we did have friends call us Paul and Mary from Father Ted, a couple that fight all the time. We would very often have just pointless arguments when we were together with our friends, but it was part of who we were as a couple. And it was never anything but daft little arguments. It was, you know, never anything important or massive, you know, it was always silly little things. So funny, grumpy just loving very loving he was a very good friend to so many of his school friends they all kept in touch and I'm actually seeing some of them in a couple of weeks time and we do keep in touch
1: oh that's really lovely and the
0: outpouring of messages of love from for him from his work colleagues and all of his friends was just lovely really really nice to see meant so much because i know how much he meant to them and you said he had a bit of a potty mouth oh yeah (laughs) if he could get away with some saying something he would
1: (laughs) humor was a bit close to the bone
0: oh very yeah an example
1: of that that you can share
0: god it's hard to pin it down sometimes there's one but it's it really is it goes beyond the bone (laughs) But if he was um, really hot, he'd say he was sweating, like, um, I don't don't know if I can say it, because it really is a bit, no, I won't say that one's too close to the bone. But yeah, he'd make reference to things that no one else would think of. But other phrases he'd say is, oh, he's shaking like a shitting dog, that sort of
1: thing. (laughs) (laughs) He nodded a bit of crudity.
0: Yes. Yeah, he really did. I just... um, I'm trying to think of things to say about him that aren't really don't make him sound like a complete potty mouth, but if he could get away with it, he absolutely would.
1: Yes, yeah, he did uh, he enjoy people's reaction, I'm guessing. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> he he did um he loved to entertain people just to see their reaction and the, the joke from the wedding where he's the best man. That summed him up completely. Because, you know, his the cheeky look on his face when he said my wife told me not to say this, but and then he proceeds to tell the joke. It's <laughs> that was him.
1: Yeah.
0: He also would come up with daft ideas that no one else would even think of. And he said, "Why can't they do a rent-a-coffin scheme? So you'd have, you know, all bells and whistles coffin. Yeah. And then you'd rent it out to the next person.
1: So you'd just be transported in the coffin to the grave, yeah. isn't it? Oh, and then
0: taken <laughs> <pick it> out. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> right yeah I see (laughs) so he sounds like a character talk me through your romance you know how you met how that progressed you said he was a bit reluctant to get down the aisle bring me back to the time when you first met him
0: so I grew up in Reading and he grew up in Bedminster in Bristol and he got a job with Prudential and they seconded him to go and work in Reading I was out one night I was a student nurse at the time he was out at the same pub and it's a quite a famous pub in Reading called the Purple Turtle and it's an alternate pub and it was the friendliest pub I've ever known. You go down there numerous times a week, student life. He was down there, and I hadn't seen him there before and the person I was with, she looked over and she said, what about him? And I looked over and I said, oh no. (laughs) And she said, no for me. I said, well if you like that sort of thing then yeah. (laughs) Anyway, he ended up standing quite close to us. And where we were sat was a long bench along the back wall. And I said to him, well, you can sit down if you want, because, you know, it's a free for all that pub. You sit wherever you like. And I remember us chatting. But the one thing I do remember is him saying, you're a lovely you are. A
1: West and Country accent.
0: Yes. Although when I met his family, he didn't have a West Country accent because they really are West Country. <laughs> But, yes, he he definitely did. And we ended up going on a couple of dates. The first time he came to pick me up, he walked me out to his car. And I was looking around thinking, please don't be that white manta. Please don't be the white manta. Of course, he goes straight towards it. I'm thinking, oh, no. And then he gets in and he puts on a pair of NHS glasses. I don't even if you remember them, the great big black rimmed glasses. I used to wear them, Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: And I sat there and I thought, okay. <laughs> and we went to Avebury and there's all the stones in Avebury that you can walk around. And we as we were walking, we were talking lots and I stopped and I said to him, I'm gonna give you a challenge. I'll challenge you to not be sarcastic for ten minutes. And he didn't manage that. And he managed about two minutes before he was sarcastic again. So We got on really well. We were together for a year, had a little bit of up and down, but we got back together. From then on, we were together since then, and we continued going out. I lived in a flat. He lived in a house. So I was living in the nurse's quarters. And then I decided to move out to a place near Redding called Wokingham with my friend, and he followed me out there, and eventually we moved in together. So we moved to Wokingham. And we started living together in 2001 and we rented a few houses down there. And he started working away from home and he'd always said he wanted to move to Bristol. I knew that would be happening. Proud Bristolian. Yeah, he loved Bristol. Yeah. What did he love uh, about him? Bristol City Football Club. His passion. He loved football. I've talked for hours about how, how much he loved football, but Bristol City were well, his club from when he was a child. So it was, you know, childhood club for him and he had a season ticket for a while he'd go and see them he'd have football on of a Saturday afternoon in the house but he'd probably fall asleep to it but it would always be on (laughs) I'm woken and we moved back to Burnham-on-Sea near Bristol because it was the best place for house prices and then we lived here since 2004 took me to Western Supermare Hospital.
1: and You said he was a bit slow to go up the aisle, but once that happened, then he was very, very committed.
0: Husband. Yeah. So he, he was never really forthcoming. It's almost like he was a bit coy about all of that stuff, you know, proposing and and doing that. So I, I decided, right, I'm going to say to him, we're going to do this. So I gave him an ultimatum while standing in front of the football. And after seven days, because I gave him seven days, he said, well, we'd better get you a ring then. We got married in 2007 and it was on his birthday. just happened that that Saturday was his birthday. What day was that? 25th of August in a beautiful place near here in Wellington. And we had the whole place for the whole weekend. So the Saturday was the wedding and the Sunday was his birthday. And he got a cake and everything. He was grinning from ear to ear following that we went on our honeymoon and we came back and one of our friends they saw us at another wedding reception they said oh my god look at you two and we were just so happy there was one time when he was working up in Northampton and about an hour later after he'd left the door went why is he back what's going on he came back and he said I forgot my wedding ring and he Came upstairs, picked it up off his bedside table, put it on, kissed me goodbye, and said, oh, I can go now.
1: Oh. He loves cider, didn't he?
0: Yes.
1: Yeah, you went to a number of events, cider-related events. Tell me about those.
0: There's a ceremony in Somerset and Dorset, possibly the rest of West Country. It's called Wassailing. And cider farms have their own ceremony. When you go, you have a poem that you recite, and it's it's all about Blessing the apple trees for the next harvest year. So they bring out a, a white girl on a chair, <laughs> walk her through the trees. They nail some cider-soaked toast to the trees, <laughs> shotguns through the trees, and the shotguns are to ward off ghosts and bad spirits from with, through the trees. Sounds like a lot of fun. It is, and then you you go in the tent. I mean, we're talking middle of January. It's freezing but it is a lot of fun and you go back in the tent and you've got live music lots of cider and you have a really good evening and we went to quite a few of those and you know we did take quite a few people with us and yeah it was it was a real good laugh that evening but it was bitterly cold some years we've been to a few cider festivals he's loved those but there's um, a farm near us and he's called Roger oh Roger Wilkins Cider Farm up in Mudgeley. And he's actually been on TV with quite a few So his favourite cider? So we used to go to a cider farm called Roger Wilkins in a village near us called Mudgeley. Had T V crews go up there with chefs, etc. He's well known. But he's a no nonsense, down to earth farmer. I don't drink cider personally, so Pete really was onto a winner with me because I'd drive him up there. The tasters that he'd be given would be half-pinters in the dimple glasses. So they'd be drinking quite a few ciders and then he'd buy what he wanted and then we'd come home. And we very often would go up there and buy some cider and some cheese, uh, bring it home for all his friends to enjoy as well. And since his passing, we've got some new cats because Pete and I had cats together, and I called one of them Roger <laughs> after Roger Wilkins. I think it would approve. <laughs> yeah. What colour is the cat? The black cat with three legs. Why three? He landed awkwardly jumping off a fence and then proceeded to do it again <laughs> and severed a nerve. So he had it amputated, but he's no worse aware for it. He bombs around the place. Good company. Yeah.
1: Bring me back to, I mean, Pete passed April 7th, 2020, is that correct? Yeah. Bring me back to the time before that, what was going on
0: in your lives? I was working full-time as a staff nurse up in Western General, in Western Supermare, and he was working full-time in Northampton in finance, in Nationwide. I'd come home one Saturday, middle of March, and started coughing whilst I was sat next to him. And I took myself to bed and I said, don't come near me. I didn't feel unwell, but I was highly suspicious. On the Sunday, he decided he was going back. I told him, no, you can't. You have to self-isolate. He decided, no, he was going back.
1: To Northampton to work?
0: Yeah. He was actually he'd been told he was a key worker, but he dealt in PPI complaints. I don't know how that's a key worker. I pleaded with him and said, don't go back. And he, he said, no, I'm fine. And he went back and I was in bed for two weeks. With COVID. And then, as soon as I was well enough, I got the train to Northampton. Now, this was before any of the face masks were about. So I I could have still been spreading it. I don't know. Got to Northampton, got to his flat, and I walked in and I looked at him and I thought, oh no, he he was grey. And I knew straight away. I've been a nurse for many years and I know somebody's sick. He didn't want to go to hospital in Northampton. So we came. I said, okay. So I drove him back and we went straight to the hospital and they wouldn't admit him through A&E. Why not? I phoned through and I said about his breathing rate, his heart rate, his pallor and the receptionist said oh they've said ring 111. She spoke to a doctor.
1: They wouldn't admit him even though you're outside the hospital they wouldn't admit him and ask you to phone 111.
0: Yeah at that point in time I was his wife I wasn't his nurse. If he'd have been my patient on a ward, I would have been ringing the doctor to say, get here now, because I could see just how unwell he was. As his wife, you don't have that power. You don't have that authority. You're his wife. you You know, so I rang 111. That was a debacle in itself. They said, Oh, I'll give you a number to call. And it was the GP. And Pete was sat in the back seat the whole way back because that's where he wanted to be. And I said, They want me to ring the GP. And he said, Can we just go home? I said, Okay. So I brought him home. We sat in the lounge. I'd rung the GP. The first person to call me back was actually a paramedic who worked at the GP. And he said, Hello, I'm so and so. And I just spewed out a load of his observations. And he said, okay, hang on, where do you work? I've worked all over, but I've worked in intensive care. He said, okay, an ambulance is coming. So the ambulance crew turned up and I knew the ambulance driver and they just had a paper mask, plastic apron and gloves as protection. And I said, is that all they've given you? She said, yeah, it's awful. That was on the 6th of April, all this happened. He managed to walk to the ambulance. It was probably the last time he walked. And as he was laying there, I, I said, I won't kiss you because I'll be seeing you soon. And don't go to intensive care because I'm starting work there tomorrow, joking with him. And he half smiled at me because he was so poorly. And that was my goodbye. And we never saw each other or spoke again. I um I was, I say, it's, uh, I was fortunate enough to know the anaesthetists at the hospital because I work with them. And... The anesthetist who was working that day went to a e to see him and he phoned me and he said his chest x-ray is horrendous. Um, he had pneumonia in both lungs and as it would turn out he also had clots in both lungs and then that night he didn't go to intensive care but he was put on the CPAP mask and then probably about five in the morning, they moved into intensive care. And I knew the girls on intensive care. And one of the girls, she'd been looking after him that night. And she said, you've got a real good one here, haven't you? (laughs) I said, yeah. I said, can you just tell him I love him? She said, oh, he's asleep at the minute. And I said, oh, don't wake him. Because I knew how tired he was. And I kept in touch with my colleagues. And it was 10.30 that morning that they intubated him put him on a ventilator and my thought at that time was oh thank god he's got a ventilator because there were all the concerns countrywide about how many ventilators that we had and i'd actually sat with one of the anaesthetists before all of this and we, we were thinking about all the ventilators we had in the hospital and we were counting them and the, our trust doesn't have all that many ventilators because we only have 300 beds. So whenever I talked to them, I, I was in nurse mode and I was thinking, right, okay, he's on the ventilator, okay. And I I would take each step as it came. And um, I kept in touch regularly and then it got to half seven that evening and I spoke to another anaesthetist and that's when he first mentioned about this not being a survivable virus and um, I knew deep down I knew but I wasn't admitting it to myself I got a call at nine o'clock and they said would you like to come in I said just please just put Joe who's my consultant colleague said please put him on the phone just tell me and they tried to bring him back for 45 minutes he was gone Oh, from the time I picked him up to the time he passed was um less than 48 hours that's so shocking it was so quick hard to deal with something so quick like that yeah and it's uh, the worst thing for me is I couldn't ask anybody else to go and get him because I couldn't put them at risk I was too sick to go and get him I couldn't see him because every time I rang him he was in the dark because he had bad headache and I said, please let me keep an eye on you and I'll ring for an ambulance if you're bad. But that's not really a plausible solution. And I don't think he understood how unwell he was. Genuinely, I don't think he knew. that a comfort to you? Um I just I hope he wasn't scared. I didn't want him to be scared or feel alone or and I, I really hope that he didn't. I think he just thought, God, I feel rubbish didn't actually understand that what that meant
1: did he have any underlying health issues i mean he fell ill you know to covid quite spectacular didn't he uh double pneumonia doubles
0: plots he was in the demographic of in his 50s overweight but nothing really else going on with him really yeah and covid seemed to hit that demographic quite severely yeah and he was one of them so I think it's just the way the the virus worked, but yeah, he certainly wasn't uh, diagnosed with anything else that we were aware of, other than you know being overweight. That was that was it really. Otherwise, he was pretty fit. He wouldn't be, for instance, getting out of breath when he was walking somewhere. He, you know, he was pretty good on his feet, and his weight wouldn't stop him doing what he wanted to. You couldn't get him really. I couldn't get to him. It's um. I'm just going to have to come to terms with that eventually. It's just incredibly difficult to think about why couldn't I get to him. And of course, I'm I'm trying to, in my own head, I'm thinking, well, why couldn't I get to him? Well, actually, I was really sick in bed. And to be honest, I don't remember much about being unwell with COVID. And my family all said to me, you, you were really unwell. And I don't remember that, which um, if I compare my experience with, how Pete experienced it I'm hoping he didn't remember much about how poorly he felt. So what
1: happened then?
0: I rang around immediate family and close friends and my sister came straight over she said I don't care if I get Covid I'm coming and she came and she's never left. Really? Um, Yeah she's still here.
1: That's amazing so she moved?
0: Did yeah she's been amazing she basically put her life aside and came to be my Support and she's done so much for me. I can't even begin to thank her enough. I'm actually building an annex outside for her, so she'll have her own front door. But she's a, a caring type of person as well. She's a nursery nurse, so she looks after youngsters. So she's got that caring side to her as well. So since all of that, I've struggled to get back to work. I'm back now, but this is my fourth attempt. My word. It's not that I link my place of work with Pete because. I never saw him there, but I have found it difficult seeing colleagues that looked after him in the beginning. That was quite emotional. And I've not been to the intensive care unit since.
1: You can't face that?
0: No. And I've actually been through occupational health and I've requested not to go and do ward work or anything anymore because I do outpatients. I do a specific role down there and um, I can't face the possibility where we're giving bad news to relatives because I I won't be able to cope.
1: Is that because it, it would make your loss feel too real or can you explain?
0: I wouldn't be able to maintain my composure. I would be very tearful. It would take me back immediately to when I lost him and I don't think i I would be of any use at all it's still very raw and it's still very unbelievable Um i know he's gone it's very hard to actually believe it because as you were saying in your, your podcast about loss throughout covid he went and nothing happened nothing but none of the rituals there were none of the goodbyes and you know we had 10 people at the funeral and i i just feel like his life ended and then nothing happened and it's almost like he didn't he didn't mean anything
1: yes that him as a person completely delegitimized not recognized
0: yeah gone and we'll just carry on yeah in the new restricted way of living that we have and whilst i was attending his funeral with nine other people the thought of what they were doing in number 10 just oh my god makes you wonder if um these people have any form of conscience or a soul do you still
1: feel that sometimes he's he could walk through the door that he's not passed
0: um not not so much now but he's with me in every day say watching tv or whatever I'm doing and I'll hear him say something in my head and it'll make me smile I'll be watching something and and he'd have made a comment about what was on the telly or and I, I'll hear it in my head and he's still with me in that respect. I've still got his narrative in my head.
1: <laughs> that must be nice. But
0: The dreams, the dreams about him. I treasure them. I cherish the dreams.
1: Tell me about them.
0: I had a dream the other night and he looked really happy, really healthy. He'd lost some weight <laughs> and part of me thinks, He's telling me he's alright.
1: How did you feel when you woke up? I
0: felt quite um quite relieved to know that he was alright. I can't I can't say that's obviously that's not a reality, but you take what you can get. Yes. <laughs> and it's quite surprising actually after a loss like this, how much you start to think, Well, is is that real and is this real? Looking at psychics and, and things like that, you're so desperate to hear that they're all right. You then start to, to have these thoughts but I've never reached out and spoken to a psychic or I've never been one for religion but I can see why people do it because you so you want to know that they're okay. Are there any other dreams that you'd like to talk about? My memory's not great which is terrible but dreams I do tend to remember and they go into quite a lot of detail but just seeing him and talking to him, it just warms my soul to to see him. It warms your soul? Yeah, because I, I feel like I've, I've felt his presence for that short time.
1: I think the public tends to feel, oh, it's been three years, you know, since COVID hit and people lost. And that they don't understand that in actual fact, many people are only just beginning to face that loss now. And that they feel that they are still back, you know, in the time that they lost the person. What do you say to someone who just cannot grasp that?
0: I have met people like that. I say it to me, it was yesterday and the, the circumstances were like no other. And not having that goodbye has just put my grief on pause. And you don't know, even in the pre-COVID times, it would have been the most difficult and heartbreaking thing I would have ever have to go through i would have found solace in the companionship of friends and the the warmth of that you get from people who show their love for him when you're together and instead it was, it was like a, a cold barren landscape where you there was just nothing and there was no one yes you had online and you could talk to people on the phone but there's nothing quite like sitting with somebody face to face talking about them and sharing tears and sharing laughter. And that has a devastating impact on your grief. You can't grieve. You can't go through the the process of grief as you would any other time. Understanding that you've lost that person is just, it's paused. And you you can't come to terms with it because everything else is distorted and different. It's, It's another thing that's different. So it's not The rest of the world carries on and this one thing is different. The rest of the world stopped and everything changed. And for those of us who went through this, who lost a person that was so dear to them, that was all part of the the change in the world. So for us to recognise the loss for what it was in amongst all this other change was so difficult and impossible for some of us because I was... um, speaking with a counsellor recently and she said I can see you've not properly grieved yet and I said I haven't gone through the normal process of grief because everything was on hold and there was just so much else going on that it didn't give us the room or the capacity to to deal with the loss of our loved ones and I know you you lost your dad and that's how I see it is everything changed at once so that made it Extremely difficult.
1: I was taken aback by, I mean, I've called it distorted grief because I feel it's more than just that it's paused. I, I feel that it's quite back to front as well. That's yeah. why I it distorted grief. And I was quite taken aback by one of the guests who said about her, she'd lost her father. He said she felt that if she had stayed in lockdown, that somehow he would come back into her life, which is an incredibly <laughs> complex Back to front way of isn't it of of speaking of feeling?
0: Yeah, I have to say when when the government would say about lifting lockdown, I'd feel so unsafe, and I hadn't considered that maybe that's because that meant I would start dealing with my grief. Yes, from other people
1: too. That that lockdown bubble, people did feel safe and secure.
0: Yeah, and that I was certainly one of them. Absolutely agree with them that it was it was a, it kept people safe. And my my nursing side came out immediately after he died, and I, I was ringing his friends and saying, "Are you all right?" And they were shocked that I was ringing them, asking them if they were all right. But I wanted people to be safe, and I never took into account that I was talking about myself. How have you managed to cope to survive? My sister massively; she's been my my saving grace because. I'm not sure I'd be here without her. Because Pete and I, we did try for children and it never happened for us. And we had a bit of a difficult time, but we came to terms with it pretty quick. We said, look, this is our life. We save money by not having kids. (laughs) So we did like we leased Mercedes convertible for three years and drove around in the summer. Basically, I'd drive Pete to a pub so we could have a pint <laughs> on a Saturday, but we did things like that instead. So it was just he and I, and we'd lost our cats a few years before, but when he died, I felt like my whole family died, my little family. And the loss of, of your own little family is, is so difficult to comprehend because it's your identity. It's who you are it's part of your your life how you're seen by the world and how you place yourself in the world it's you know i'm married you know i we don't have kids but we have fun and and you know and then when he's gone it's me and i feel it puts you in such a different vulnerable position because your identity is gone as a wife it's uh, it changes you really changes you to identify as a widow is, it's just i can say it to people and say, oh yeah, I'm a widow, but I don't believe what I'm saying. Yes, just a word. It doesn't. It doesn't reflect. You feel like
1: you're almost talking about someone else's. Yes, Yes. but it's not real.
0: Yeah, like I said earlier, knowing he's gone and understanding that he's gone are two different things.
1: Have you been able to celebrate him in any way or do anything like that?
0: No, his family aren't that forthcoming, and it that has been difficult in organising something. There's a lot of things that have been left to me, well, everything's been left to me. I do have plans for it, but the longer it goes on for, the worse I feel. And I'm worried that people think I'm not going to do anything and, and that they're getting him. And, and I know they're not. Of course they're not, but it's I've now decided what it is that I'm doing, so... I will be organising a date and uh, and doing it. And I want it to be a celebration. The best thing that I ever did, though, Karen, was for his 50th, which was his last birthday. I organised a surprise get-together. So we went down to a pub on Bristol Docks. Slowly, throughout the whole day, all his different friends turned up. And he just smiled the whole day. And I think he had the best day of his life, other than our wedding. (laughs) And to me, that was his celebration of life because he was there and he got to see how much people loved him and, and wanted to sh- share that day with him. And uh, it's the best thing I ever did.
1: That's great that you have that you did that and you have that now to remember.
0: Yeah, I think that's possibly why I've not rushed to do a celebration is because I feel we've already had it in a way and he was there for it. Of course, at the time, you don't know that's what it is. But looking back, it's absolutely the best thing we have ever done He saw childhood friends People he went to On holiday with In a caravan When he was 18 You know Just all these different people Turned up And he was over the moon mm-hmm. And it was a funny day
1: Can I play you an excerpt now Of a song If that's okay Yeah Explain the significance of that song to you, Sam.
0: Um, it became our song. chose it for the first dance at our wedding. And I knew the song and I loved the words. I love them. I made our first dance and after dancing, I turned around. And my sister was in floods of tears and I said... <laughs> Said about her crying at us, shuffling on the spot for two minutes, but it meant so much to both of us. And we were on honeymoon in Las Vegas and we went to see the fountains. That song was playing, and it's almost like it was everywhere we went. We'd got back from a night at wassaying and. Uh, We were with our friends and he put it on and we had a a little dance to it. And then we played it for his funeral and I read out a eulogy. My last words were, however far away, I will always love you. And it took on a different meaning after his death, but it still means the same.
1: Can you sum up Pete's legacy? Larger than life, funny, lovable,
0: and the love of my life.
1: You were very fortunate to have him and to have found each other, I must say. It sounds like a really gorgeous relationship, love affair, friendship, all those things.
0: I always adored the fact that it was very organic in the way we met and we got to know each other and faced the bumps along the road and accepted each other for who we were, even though it would irk each other at times, you know, uh, what couple don't. But we just worked. I always, always loved him and I felt so loved by him. And the, the happiness and the security you get from somebody who shows you that much love is priceless you can't you can't make that up and however far away he is I will always love him and I'll never stop loving him and he will always be a part of me
1: is there anything else that you'd like to add about Pete about COVID-19
0: it's completely tragic the way his life was just wiped out in the blink of an eye in amongst all the upset and difficulty going on in the world. And and it was an alien world at the time. Nobody knew what was going on. And in amongst that, such a bright star was extinguished. And I'd like that to be known that, you know, he was there and then he was gone. And it was like it never happened. And as for the government response, the eight Cobra meetings that weren't attended by the PM, the lack of PPE, the lack of response... The lack of direction from the government is so infuriating. I can't begin. As a nurse, I know other things could have been done that weren't. And I can't understand why. But the one phrase from the government that really sticks in my throat is herd immunisation. The thought that they wanted people to spread it around to create immunity. What do you think of that? Ridiculous. And the cause of so many deaths and so much grief. It's irresponsible. And I can't understand why they thought it was a viable option, knowing full well, it would put so many lives in danger and result in so many deaths. And they thought that was an acceptable course of action. I feel that in a healthcare setting, we should have been wearing masks a lot earlier. I think the general public should be wearing masks a lot earlier. The doctors in Italy begging us to close our borders, well before they decided to close our borders over here, is upsetting because they, they were in the middle of it and they knew how devastating it could be. No one listened to them who had the power to take action on it. We're in the fortunate position where we're an island. We can close our borders. We can protect our citizens. And they put money above lives and continue to leave the borders open. I saw a patient probably the second week of March and her husband had just returned from China. What's that all about? How on earth can somebody come back from a country that's spreading a pandemic? I don't blame China, but you'll never convince me it didn't come from a lab. I mean, I thought they've actually identified the protein within the virus that identifies it as man-made. Otherwise, that protein wouldn't be there. I know the Chinese government will never admit that. But, you know, I've I've spoken with Lady Hallett and given my opinion on the government dealings with COVID-19. And I wanted to speak for Pete because Pete's not had a voice in any of this, as none of our loved ones have. None of them have been able to say anything about what happened and how things were dealt with, but we can. So, I'm so very sorry for your
1: loss, Sam, but I think it's tremendously important that you are speaking here today and that you have this space to recognise Pete and how much he meant and what his loss means.
0: It means a tremendous amount to be able to speak about him on a public platform and tell people about him because he was he was a loving funny man he was loved by many so thank you very much Karen for the opportunity
1: no thank you Sam and in sharing through, you'll be helping so many other people people who are going through something similar and simply can't (laughs) sense of it you know that's just so so important well done
0: well I I, one thing I, I didn't say was about The group I'd set up on Facebook, after he died, I looked for somewhere to talk to others who'd lost people through COVID. And I think because it was so early on, there weren't any groups. I set up the COVID Bereavement Support Group and we've got 1,200 members at the minute. People are more than welcome to join. You don't have to comment. You can just have a little look through and you may see similarities between yourselves and others who've lost people. And it's just a little community where people can share their feelings and not, and they're they're free to do so even, as you say, after all this time has passed. If you have a day where you really miss them, then share it because none of us will judge it. We understand. Sometimes it's difficult to talk to family or friends who are a little distanced from it. But for those who are going through it will understand because, like you say, it's distorted grief.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Sam, and for sharing that. Thank you so much for the interview and take care.
0: Thank you. You too.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Please do subscribe and review the podcast if you get a minute. And if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so via the show notes. The price of a coffee would be fantastic. And also please do follow Stolen Goodbyes on Twitter at @ricekmc and under Stolen Goodbyes on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to participate, you can email at stolengoodbyes at gmail.com or visit my website www.karen-rice.com. Good luck.